welcome back to Polly Wanna Cracker. It's been a little while, I know. Um, I had to take some time to get my head around a, a new job, a new job that I started in December. Um, flying through it, it's going well, thank you for asking, even though you didn't. Uh, but finally getting back into the swing of things with Polly Wanna Cracker. So this is episode 35 of Polly Wanna Cracker with Senator Janet Rice of the Greens. Janet's main portfolios are the LGBTIQ uh, community, uh, transport and infrastructure, agriculture and rural affairs and forests. Um, so there's a lot of environmental talk, a lot of talk about that, climate change. Um, and I even get to find out a little bit about what happened on that Russian boat when she got stuck in ice in the Antarctica. Seriously, yeah, you, you're going to want to listen to that. But, you know, we also get on to the recent developments in Parliament where uh, the Senate committee have come to a consensus on same-sex marriage. So there's a little bit of chat about that too. So I hope you're happy that Polly Wanna Cracker is back. I'm pretty happy that we're back recording it. Um, and I've got a few more lined up coming soon and soon hot on the heels of this episode. Um, it's quite a contrast from this. Uh, we'll be going from the left all the way over to the right and we'll be talking to Senator Corey Bernardi for the second time so uh, make sure you keep an eye out for that episode that's it from me well not really because you're about to hear me again do another interview but that's it from me in this intro thank you for being patient Um, I hope you're going to stick by me and uh, keep listening keep downloading Uh, so enjoy episode 35 with Senator Janet Rice Senator Janet Rice, how are you? I'm good, thanks, Tim. Thank you very much for making the time to have a chat to me. This is the first one I've recorded in a little while because I've been on a little hiatus, but now we're back, and so you're the very first guest for 2017. Oh, I feel very privileged. Yeah, yeah. I wish I had an award for you, but <laughs> it's not <laughs> really not that important. But anyway, um, so I just want to you know, have a chat, obviously get to know you and get to know more about you politically, um, but... In researching this, you know, I, I just found it really interesting that uh, you were a driving force and a founding member of the Australian Greens Victoria back in 1992. So I guess what I'm interested initially uh, to find out is, you know, what led you to that point and how did that party form? Yeah, well, I sort of started off my career, you know, as a, as a young adult, um, as a, a studied science at, at uni. And this was, you know, way back in 1980, a long time ago, showing my age. And I learned about climate change. And so at that stage, I was really mortified by what the implications of global warming were. And I thought, this is really serious. And, you know, the world needs to be taking action on this. And I very strongly felt the need to be taking action myself and decided that my my career was going to be more appropriately down the path of being a campaigner um, for action rather than a scientist. So I finished my science degree, um, um, which was good, you know, got, did that, but then started looking for work in the environment movement, which I then managed to, to get a job with what was then the Conservation Council of Victoria, which is now Environment Victoria, not many jobs going for climate change activists back then, um, so I found myself working generally in sort of nature conservation, biodiversity, and particularly forests. 
So I spent about seven years being a forest campaigner trying to get protection for the magnificent, um, wonderfully um, diverse forests of Far East Gippsland in Victoria and had some successes. And we got a couple of national parks, which I'm very proud to have been the leader of the campaigns that have resulted in the Erinundra National Park and some other wonderful forests. Um, kept on as a campaigner after that, um, that success and got really, really fed up with always being, only being able to do whatever Labor or Liberal wanted to deliver and recognising that they really just only um, took action on um, environmental social justice issues when the politics were right, not because they fundamentally believed in it. So at, this, at that stage, the Greens were just forming in Tasmania. So um, Bob Brown and Christine Milne had been elected to the Tasmanian Parliament as Green Independents and they were forming as a party. And I thought, what we need is the Greens in Victoria. So we had Bob Brown coming across Bass Strait in an instant and to encourage us along. And yeah, and we started off, it was um, November 1992, so almost 25 years at the end of this year. And we formed a party with, I think it was something that was... 17, I think, members initially. So it's just been a, a growth period since then. Um, there's a couple of things I want to, little uh, dovetails I want to spin off into there. Uh, first of all, uh, I want to come back to you know, the formation of the party, but um, when you mentioned things like climate change back then, I mean, even now, that sort of thing elicits a bit of a different response from some people. So back then, like when you talked about climate change and the environment, what sort of reaction did you get? Did people understand what you were talking about? No, most people didn't, and which is why you know there was a, I had this really strong sense of needing to talk to people about it and get the message out and to sort of you know had this recognition that unless we really took serious urgent action that we were going to have some very very disastrous consequences for people and for um, all of the planet, and so you know at that stage it was uh, the science was already you know back then in the, the early eighties was already pretty clear. In fact, you know, the initial understanding of the you know, physical and chemical properties of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere have been known since the 1890s. And it's just been sort of gradually sort of firming up um, what the implications are going to be um, in, in essence. So, and it's really, it's been a, a process you know, since then of just the science having um, got more and more detailed and more and more accurate as to, to what the likely impacts are going to be. And of course in that 30 years since then we've also seen the, the impacts of having you know, over a degree of warming in our atmosphere which is you know, leading to the extreme temperatures and the breaking of records you know, happening year after year after year. But it's, it, it's been a, a gradual process and um, one you know, from then knowing that here was a, a big issue to, you know, the time now that we're saying, well, you know, not only 97% of, of um, scientists, but the majority of the population, certainly here in Australia, accepting that climate change is real and we, you know, we need to be taking serious action about it. Of course, you know, we hear about the climate denialists because they get a lot of publicity. They're, you know, very loud and, and outspoken, but they actually don't reflect um, the majority of opinion and the majority of, of people want us to take action. I guess I'm a little bit fascinated. What type of science goes in to those, into those calculations and, and how is it then deciphered and, and given to the public so they can truly understand it? Because it's almost like, you know, some people don't, still don't understand it. And you mentioned some of those climate denialists, you know, like what is that about? Um, well, I suppose, I mean, that's, that's one of the, the 
big issues that I, I see in the Senate is that you've got people that are basically challenging, you know, scientific methodology, and uh, which I think is a, a real worrying. Um, thing that's going on in our society today but really I mean it's you've got a whole range of different different science disciplines that come together with um, to put together the whole science of climate change based on you know the the physical properties that we know that if you put you emit carbon dioxide that's you know coming from the burning of coal gas and oil that was laid down in the uh, in the in the earth um, you know, hundreds of millions and, and billions of years ago that you're essentially using all of that that took all of that time to be laid down and we've been burning it in 150 years and what we know about the physical properties of carbon dioxide is that um, it absorbs radiation so whereas with less carbon dioxide in the atmosphere the radiation that comes in from the sun can just be reflected back out again what happens with more carbon dioxide is the, you know, the um, putting that blanket around the earth is that more of that heat then gets trapped within the atmosphere and so as I said you know those physical properties have been known for a very long time and really the development of climate science is just what the impacts of that are going to be how that's going to change all of our um, our weather systems and how, where it's going to impact the most and yes it's you know there's still a little bit of uncertainty in terms of that detail um, but the overall consequences of you know, increasing temperatures increasing extreme weather events um, particularly you know increased um, floods and increased droughts that's been very clear for you know for decades now is is the inaction on uh, climate change just the government is too wrapped up in you know big business old business big industry coal that type of thing is there is there something going on there that you know the public don't see well yes i mean and it's really interesting looking at the trajectory of action because there was you know and again having followed this for so long you can just sort of look back at it and say that there was a you know a lot of support and a lot of government support um you know in, in globally in fact until the big fossil fuel companies recognise that, hey, this is going to mean that we're going to be losing out. And so that's when they really started kicking in and we had the massive campaigns to be um, challenging action and challenging the shift that, you know, we could be doing. And that's, that's the frustrating thing is we know what needs to happen. We know that we've got the potential to be shifting our energy systems to 100% renewable energy. Um, the technologies are there and if we actually put, you know, a decent amount of research into them, we would be having even better technologies than we've got. But because of the vested interests in those powerful um, fossil fuel companies, they are stopping action. And just like the um, tobacco industry and uh, whether um, you know, cigarettes cause lung cancer, all they've needed to do is is to be sowing doubt and saying, oh, no, we're not quite sure yet, so we, you know, action's not required as yet. Just leave it for a bit, a bit longer until you've, you've done more research. And meanwhile, you know, the, the impacts are just um, increasing, you know, by the day, the month, the year. So I think we are now at a bit of a, a tipping point in that the, the level of support for action is continuing to increase, and it's because the impacts are being felt. You know, you look at the... The, um, the heat waves, you look at the impact of sea level rise, you look at the extreme fires, you look at the number of people that are dying in those heat waves, you look at the floods and droughts um, and the fact that it's happening all over the world is that you've got, you know, 
as each year goes on, you have got more and more sort of political support for action. In fact, you know, the last Australian opinion poll that was was undertaken showed that uh, we've got now well over 60% of Australians who say that, yep, climate change is real and we need to be taking serious urgent action to be doing something about it. So essentially we just need to be having the political power to and and convincing the you know, um, and all politicians of all stripes that it's in their political interest to be taking action. Clearly, you know, the Labor Party is slowly being dragged along and... Um, we saw in the 2010 election when we had the Greens sort of supporting Labor in government that we had some you know, really serious action taken in terms of the, the clean energy um, legislation that was brought in, in place and the emissions trading scheme was brought, was brought in. But then, you know, since then, having been that political football because of the, um, the Liberal and National parties feeling that they could make political capital out of, out of being denialists, we're still still in that end game at the moment, but I can't see that even a conservative government, you know, within a couple of years, will be able to maintain a a, a position of being anti-action on climate because it's just going to be so obvious that um, that serious action's required. I mean, the Liberals' position of the last few years of saying, "Oh, no, we'll just deal with it through direct action," is very clearly, you know, it's already being shown to be laughable. So they're going to have to change their position. Um, they may have to have to have a, a period out of government to change their position, but I can that that'll inevitably happen. Mm, yeah, and perhaps if they find a way to make big money out of it, then they might change rather quickly. Well, that's right, and yes, and I mean that's the other thing that's going for it is that you know the economics of renewables are such that there's you know there's obviously a lot of money that can be made out of renewables, and the renewable energy for new energy is cheaper. Per, um, per per unit of energy than it is to be building you know, new coal-fired power stations. So, the given given that economics is on our side as well, the you know it, it's inevitable. It's just so frustrating that we have to wait for so long um, for action to be taken because we know that you know every day that action's not being taken is another day of of that pollution that is you know, is causing a massive amount of, of damage to to our future. Mm, yeah, look, still talking about, um, you know, the climate and, and science, um, but maybe a little bit different to politics, and I'm sure you've been asked this a lot, but in researching for this, I thought it was interesting that I read that you were on the Australasian Antarctic Expedition in 2013-14, um, or I believe it was 2013, and that Russian ship, um, that you were on, the academic uh, Shikolsky, I believe Shikolsky, I'm... Shikolsky, yeah, there you go. Right. Academic Shikolsky. There you go. Yes. I, I was almost there, almost got it. Um, but that became yeah. stuck in thick ice for two weeks and you were on board that ship. So I know everyone was evacuated on January 2nd and, you know, but tell me about that experience. Like, what is your mental state like in a situation like that and what kind of goes through your mind when you're stuck in the Antarctic? Oh, look, I mean, it was incredible. I mean, there was... There was a, a brief period of only about half a day, I think, when it was when we thought that we were seriously at risk, and in fact, it was because not so much because we were stuck. I mean, ships get stuck in the ice all the time. You usually don't hear about them. The reason it was news was because half of the people on board were were off, you know, science volunteers paying passengers, and which which is why it was more of a an issue. 
um, that you know half a day when it looked like an iceberg was going to get a bit too close to us. Yeah, a bit of bit of worry, but then the rest of the time it was well, look, we'll get out of here eventually, and let's just you know appreciate the the opportunity to be here in the most amazing place that Antarctica really is, and it it was. For me, uh, I was on this trip, it was during the period of time after um, the 2013 election, so when I'd been elected, but before taking my, my seat in the Senate, which was nine months later on the um, 1st of July 2014. And so the, it was a, a terrific opportunity to you know, fulfil this lifelong ambition of getting to Antarctica and you know, ended up spending an extra two weeks. Um, we had six weeks, six weeks away rather than four with the, the two weeks being stuck. It was just an extraordinary place. But also, you know, one of the, the really sobering things was you could see you know, and, and learn about what the impacts climate was having. At that stage, it was um, you know, the increase in, in sea ice was occurring because of the changing weather patterns. And we've now, um, it's just over this last summer, in fact, it's sort of the, the, the weather has changed again. We've now got record low levels of sea, sea ice around Antarctica. And you see this place that you, know, you see as just being so remote and so pristine, yet the global impacts of climate, uh, of climate change are being felt you know, just as much there as, as anywhere else. And then to learn about, you know, in the time since then, of, of you know, all of the, you know, the melting of of the glaciers and the breaking down of, of, you know, massive chunks off the Antarctic ice sheet. And it really does, you know, this sobering effect of, of just how, sm how small we are compared to these planetary processes. And, you know, again, you know, getting back to the impacts of global warming, it's as if, you know, we're in this runaway train that's sort of heading towards a precipice. Um, we could stop it, but you know, just because we don't think that it's, we don't want it to happen, is not going to stop it happening. And you know, the the plight of human beings on the planet, well, yep, you know, we we could suffer the consequences. Um, you know, life on the planet will continue. There's been plenty of uh, history of the, of the planet without humans on it, um, but you know, it's it's extremely, you know. Sobering is probably the word to think of, of what yeah. those consequences could be. What are, what are some of the reasons that these climate change denialists give, you know, for for not believing, you know, the reports and the evidence and the, you know, what's going on? Like, is there any? Do they have any reasoning behind their argument? No, and you know, you we, if you, I mean, essentially, there's the only rationale with question, people questioning climate science is, you know, we haven't got the exact detail right as to exact, you know, which area of which continent is going to suffer how much warming or how much increase or decrease in rainfall. All of their other, every argument that the climate denialists put forward as to why climate change may not be real has been adequately and properly addressed by climate scientists for, you know, for many years. And for most of them, I mean, if you, you know, listen to... Um, Senator Malcolm Roberts from um, Paul and Hanson One Nation Party in the Senate. I mean, he just doesn't make sense at all, you know. And you, he's had um, CSIRO, he's had the chief scientist, he's had other really respected and terrifically talented scientists try and engage with him logically and rationally. And he just, there's nothing that you can say to him that would actually change his mind. It's um, the, the positions he's putting are just illogical and unscientific. Um, and yet he, he won't hear that from, from anybody. So, you know, 
the only the saving grace is he's only a you know the people who who feel that way are only a small minority and we don't have to wait until we've convinced all of them before taking action yeah no fair enough i've actually reached out to him as well because i kind of i want to know what what what's the go man like what why do you think the way that you do but anyway um we'll see what happens there but uh okay so i just want to quickly go back um you know to the, the beginning of the greens party um you know the Greens now and then. Are you are you happy with the party in its current state, and do you feel like it's it stood the test of time and remained uh, true to its core values? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've got our fundamental values of ecological sustainability, social justice, peace, and nonviolence, and participatory, participatory democracy that uh, are at the heart of everything we do. The you know, the biggest challenges of working in parliamentary politics is that you accept that, OK, we're working within the system and so you can never get everything that you want as quickly as you want it. Um, but essentially we've been in a position, in a progress, you know, a process over those 25 years of just building our parliamentary power to be able to have that you know, parliamentary power to be doing things in the interests of you know, sustainability and social justice and you know, creating a, a, a cleaner and fairer society. So it's been, you know, if, if you look back, if I look back over those 25 years, it's been slower than what I would have liked it to have been. But in some ways, you know, if you look at the level of, of support that we've got now, our level of parliamentary representation of, you know, there are 10 of us in the um, federal parliament, nine senators and Adam in the House of Representatives. We've got state members of parliament in Western Australia, South Australia, Tasmania, Victoria, New South Wales. And, you know, and we've just, and we've continued to grow. Um, you know, we haven't we haven't been going backwards. It was you know frustrating at the last election, getting so close in winning extra lower house seats in the seats of um, Batman and Melbourne Ports in in Melbourne. We didn't quite get there, but we came so so close. And you know, next time, um, I expect that we'll get over, over the line. So, and then we'll be in a position to really you know with increased numbers in the in both the house and in, and and continuing our representation in the Senate. I'm hopeful that we you know, will be in a position, um, particularly if we have a change of government and have Labor in government, we'll be there to sort of hold them to account and to be continuing to be um, having then more political leverage to be getting the outcomes um, that, we, that we know are going to be the interests of a, a fairer and, and, and more sustainable Australia. Yeah, well, as one of those OG original members, um, have you ever considered running for the leadership of the party? Uh, <laughs> no. No? Really? Richard's Why not? doing a great job. Yeah. <laughs> oh, look, well, well, I think, you know, I've been, I've been in the Senate for two and a half years, so I'm, I'm still fairly, fairly new at it. Um, yeah. It, and in fact, you know, the reason... I'm not in politics because I want to, I've got a great ego and I want to be in a you know leadership position. I'm in politics because I want to achieve change. I'm in politics because I'm passionate about the you know the portfolios I've got, um, of, and and I want to be creating you know doing everything I can to to be getting that change. So you know if if the opportunity came up and you know the leadership was there when I thought that I was in the right position, I'd throw my hand in the hat. But I think Richard's doing a terrific job as you know Christine and Bob before him did um, and I think that's you know so much of, of politics the the narrative around it is all about you know people's personal ambitions and their personal egos and the thing that I think does differentiate the Greens from the other parties that we are all driven by by wanting to see see change for a better society not because we think that any one of us is you know God's gift to the parliament.
<laughs> yeah, well, it's, uh, yeah, exactly. What I, I did want to ask you, uh, do you, do you feel like we're a more tolerant society now than when, you know, the green started or, you know, or, or even from when you were oh, growing up? We, yeah, we at that stage. I think we're, no, I think we've sort of, we're going backwards at a rapid rate of knots at the mm-hmm. moment. And that's what I feel, you know, extremely worried about because that intolerance and, you know, the racism and the, the xenophobia, um, particularly on, you know, multiculturalism and issues of race that's being fanned, you know, initially by by John Howard and then by Tony Abbott and certainly with the rise of, of One Nation. It's just people allowing people to sort of think that um, people who are different to them can be scapegoats and that, you know, that's, that's the problem. So whereas I felt, you know, when I was in my 20s that, you know, we were making progress and we were, were becoming more tolerant and really celebrating our multiculturalism and really building that, that sense of being, you know, together and, and respecting everybody regardless of who they are, I feel that because of the, the rise of that right-wing politics at the moment that that is being challenged. And I don't think that is, you know, it's not, it's not reflective of um, mainstream Australian culture, but you've got to keep working at, at that celebrating of diversity and that um, I mean, more than tolerance and, and, and respecting of, of people regardless of who they are. And it's got to be modelled from the top. So when people see their leaders being um, not so tolerant and not so respectful, it gives people, you know, um, license to do things that they mightn't have, have done or, or felt um, a decade ago. Yeah, and I mean, it seems with the rise of the internet as well that um, people, uh, I don't accepting is maybe not the right word, but they accept that something, whatever that something is, is a thing now. Okay, so that's that that exists, but um, it's like the the agree to disagree thing is completely out the window, and most people are like, well, if you don't agree with my point of view, then oh well, you're my you're my enemy now, you know. And it's almost like the mm. internet having given everyone a voice. It's kind of just. It seems, you know, not that the internet's going away, but you know what I mean? It's sort of like just... Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a two-edged sword, that's right. And, and people can find other people that agree with them and, and feel that that differentiates them from others. Whereas, you know, I think we, we need to keep on, on working at sort of building, building bridges, um, which is certainly, you know, for me, and I think it's, you know, partly from having grown up in a, in a working-class suburb with people of all backgrounds from all around the world in the western suburbs of Melbourne and then having lived, you know, all of my adult life in Footscray, incredibly diverse and you just reckon when you've got people from all over the world who are your neighbours, you know that you know we are all the same, and that we all deserve the, you know the, the same chances, and that we've all got the same sort of hopes and dreams, and that's the sort of you know messages and and um, philosophy that we need to continue to be pushing in Australia because you know we are the most. We are the most successful multicultural nation in the world, and so it, we, you know, we've got the potential to show that that this is how it can be done. But of course, the the other really critical thing that feeds into people, you know, respecting and and feeling that respect is not to you know, 
to feel that they need somebody who's a scapegoat and we need you know, by reducing inequality um, well then you you reduce the opportunities for people to feel that oh you know they are doing really badly and so it must be somebody's fault and that's what's going on at the moment in Australia you know, more and more people if they feel alienated they feel left behind they're unemployed they haven't got good jobs they're having to really struggle to to make ends meet it's very easy to feel that well you know it must be somebody's fault it must be you know um, Muslims fault it must be the fault of 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 people who aren't like them and when that's being you know, encouraged by people like One Nation that's when it becomes really dangerous so we've got to do two things we've got to um, be really um, calling out that, that racism and that intolerance where it occurs from from people like you know One Nation senators but we also need to be you know tackling the increasing inequality in our society so that people you know they haven't got um, really quite justified resentment because of some people getting you know a much a much better go in society than they are. Perhaps an even bigger challenge uh, to tackling racism and those sorts of things. You you are one of the senators on the Senate committee that recently reached a consensus on same-sex marriage. So the government yeah. seems completely set on this plebiscite. So how does this affect the conversation with the coalition moving forward? Oh, look, I can't. The, the plebiscite's dead. It's gone. It's never going to happen. Um, and we know that we've got two-thirds of the Australian community who, you know, support marriage equality. You know, and so it's it's inevitable, I think, that the coalition, you know, like on climate, they're going to have to change their position. They're going to have to find a way to do it. Um, but because it's, um, you know, support for marriage equality is popular in the community, um, I cannot see that they are going to go to the next election saying that their position is is for a plebiscite, because we also know that you know the the mood of the of the community about the plebiscite is once they once people found out what this plebiscite meant that we didn't need it that we you know Parliament could just need to do its job and vote for it that we've got a majority of parliamentarians in the in the Parliament who support marriage equality that a plebiscite was um, going to cost 160 million dollars and it was an Inevitable. It was going to, you know, unleash a lot of hate speech from some pretty intolerant people. You know, most people um, recognise, no, we don't need to go through that. Let's just let Parliament do its job and get on and, and vote for it. So I can't see, you know, with the level of support for marriage equality, that it's going to be tenable for the government to go into the next election with their current position. And they're going to have to change. And, you know, and um, I'm really looking forward to that. <laughs> I'm hopeful that we, that, you know, despite the current position of the government, that we're going to be in a position to have achieved marriage equality. Um, you know, I, I've still got my, my hope set on achieving it this year. Right. Okay. Well, have the have the government hinted at anything else? I mean, because um, I haven't seen anything else or any movement on their position so much. And I know the plebiscite is done and dusted. But um, what other alternative have they? I haven't seen them come up with anything else. So have they hinted, or is there any kind of movement that you see on their side yet? No. Well, at this stage, what we're going to have to do is for be for Parliament to be leading it rather than the government and following our. Um, Senate inquiry report. Um, I'm very keen on uh, us working together and getting some cross-party legislation introduced into the Senate. So, and we will, in fact, um, potentially start the process of drafting that, legis uh, getting that legislation drafted um, within the next month. Once we're back in Canberra at the end of the month, 
And so then it will be, um, and that will be, you know, legislation that will be informed by the findings of our, our Senate inquiry. Um, and we will just keep the pressure on that way. And there's, you know, potentially, um, we will, you know, we will introduce that legislation into the Senate. Um, we'll see um, the best time to be debating it. And there's, you know, a very good chance of, of legislation like um, that, of that legislation actually being passed through the Senate. Um, in which case it will then you know, go to the House of Reps where it will sit there and the pressure will continue to be on um, the government and on Prime Minister Turnbull to be allowing it to be debated and voted on. And it's basically, the, the key thing is it's not going to go away. There's community support and there's a very you know, well-organised, well-funded campaign um, that's you know, being run in the community that's going to... You know, keep the pressure on to say, look, this issue is not going to go away. The only way the issue is going to go away is when the parliament does its job and votes on marriage equality, and then you know, two people, two people will be able to marry the pe- pe- person they love. Yeah, if it if it does get through and it's voted on, and uh, do you think that'll be the end of Malcolm Turnbull? Look, I think if no, Malcolm Turnbull's got the opportunity to be the champion. Mm-hmm. I think if it's what I just mean within his own is, party. Oh look, you know, if he, who knows what's happening with Liberal Party politics? Yeah. You know, you'll have yeah. to go and talk to a Liberal, the Liberal Party politicians to know how things are, are going there. Um, you know, but I, our view is, look, you know, Malcolm Turnbull's got the opportunity to be the champion to stand up to his, you know, the troglodytes on his backbench because he can't win by you know, negotiating with them. Call them out and say, "Come on, you know, mainstream Australia and the majority of the Australian people want to have this um, happening, and that critically that it's going to be essential for the survival of their government to be legislating for marriage equality. Otherwise, you know, they're going to go down in a in a in a great heap." Fair enough. All right. Well, I think we'll leave it there. Our um, thirty minutes is is about up. So, thank you very much, Janet, for making the time to talk to me, and I hope we can do this again uh, sometime soon. Terrific. Thanks, Tim. Uh, no worries. Thank you very Good much. Idea. Thanks. Bro, why do you want to-